Well, good morning. Let me try that again. Good morning. <laughs> All right. The first service was almost silent with me this morning. Would you please break the trend? Thank you. Over here, this man, Josh. May your tribe increase. <laughs> Happy Memorial Day weekend to you all. Special thank you to all of those who have served our country so valiantly in the armed forces. And we know we have many uh, families here who have uh, family members who are represented overseas even now serving our country. And so we're very grateful for you on this Memorial Day weekend and pray for your family and their safety. We have a number of things going on in our church right now. Uh, Kevin, why don't you share with us what's up right now? <laughs> what's up? We have a lot of great things that are coming up here at, at eFree, and just wanted to highlight a couple of them. And first of all, on June 19th, which is Father's Day, um, we will be hosting the eFree Classic Rally, which we did last year, and we're going to bring that back this year again. And so it'll be a time where all kinds of classic cars, motorcycles, trucks, whatever it might be, um, are going to be on our grounds, as well as food vendors and some um, family activities. I'm thinking about entering my 2002 Kia Sedona. It's a classic pastor's car. <laughs> what do you have? Anything? I have a 1954 Camaro. <laughs> I wish. You don't either. <laughs> Isn't there a deadly sin about lying? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. We'll get to that next week. Okay. But if you have a, a classic car, motorcycle, or truck, um, we are asking you to pre-register that. Uh, you can go on carneyefree.com and do that. If you pre-register, you're going to get a t-shirt, which is an awesome thing. Also, if you're going to come that Sunday, and we hope that you do, uh, please bring two canned goods. It's going to help out our food pantry and the storehouse ministry, and so we're asking you to do that. So, it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Um, yeah, it's going to be a great day. This next Sunday, June 5th, we'll be hosting or having the Challenge Pancake Feed. And if you just look at the title, it kind of sounds like maybe you and I are going to figure out who can eat the most pancakes. <laughs> no. No, that would be last week's message, The Sin of Gluttony. gluttony. Okay. <laughs> so we'll not be doing that. Challenge is our uh, every other year conference a national student ministry conference for the free church that our high school students are going to go to this summer. And so it's, a, it's kind of expensive, and so we're going to help them defray some of the costs with that by having pancakes next Sunday and other breakfast items I read. Hmm. So that'll be good after both services, and we would like for you to come hungry and not plan on going out to eat and just hanging out with us. It'll be in the quad room. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And so that'll be a free will donation. In your handout, well, before I get to that, if you're here for the first time, we do want to say welcome. Glad that you're here. And, and we would love for you to uh, fill out the connection card that's in the handout. And whatever you feel comfortable filling out, that's awesome. And you can tear that up. Not tear it up. Tear it out. And... Uh, you can place it in the box as you leave. Uh, we would love to get to know you a little better. Also in your handout is this survey card. And some of you have already filled this out, but we're asking you this morning to um, fill it out. Even if you don't, are not planning on going over, at least check yes on the second one 
that you'd be willing to pray. So you can fill it out now as we're talking about it. You know, Adrian, this spring, right, we've experienced a lot of growth um, in all of our services, really, overflow, but the bilingual service 11, the 915 service, and this service at 11. And really consistently, we've seen maybe 80, 85% attendance or capacity in this service. And so to the point where when you come in at 11 or just a little shortly after, and, and we're standing in worship, it's just really difficult. It feels full, mm-hmm. and it's really difficult to find a seat. And so that's a great opportunity. It's growth. And so what are we going to do, which is really the, the question that we were posed with, what are we going to do to help alleviate some of that? So we got together and um, came up with this um, solution, is it developing a unique quality missional service or venue service at 915 in the North Auditorium. And so really the question that I, that I wanted to ask you this morning is um, just kind of talk us through why we selected a venue service mm-hmm. to handle um, this growth at 11. Sure. So as Kevin noted, we've had a lot of growth, particularly in this service, an average spring uh, Sunday, we've, we've had 750 to 800 people in this room, and when you come in a room that size, it just feels like you don't have any room. And part of our vision here is that every person matters, and it can be really frustrating to enter into a church and feel like there's not a place for you, and we don't want that to happen ever. And so as such, we've been looking at a number of different service options. We considered maybe a 12.30 service here or a Saturday night service here. But that can be a challenge just in terms of the number of additional volunteers that you need to uh, come up with for an additional service. And so um, we've seen uh, something like this done at a number of other places really, really well. I've personally been experienced with this in the past doing a venue. And it can be a great way for us to open up seats in this room by offering a 9.15 hour service that is also contemporary music. We know a lot of people that come to this hour um, do so because they love the band, and understandably so, the band is fantastic. And um, this would give us uh, two different opportunities at 9.15 and 11 to worship with a contemporary style and then still have the 9.15 service in this room that's kind of the blended musical style that many others really love. And so we can maintain all of that while also creating a little bit more of a unique, intimate environment over there for a smaller number of people. And I would say finally that we didn't want to move our bilingual ministry, which meets right now at the 11 o'clock hour, Right now, our bilingual ministry is meeting over in the North Auditorium, and that's a growing, wonderful ministry. We really love Pastor Pablo and the work that he's doing and, uh, and that great church service, and we didn't want uh, to inconvenience them, and so we wanted to keep them at the 11 o'clock hour in the North Auditorium. Yeah, and really, right, this is more than just a overflow service for that, really, that hour, yeah. and so it's really thinking through, we really picked those words carefully, unique um, quality and missional, and so maybe just expand. I know you talked a little bit about four, but just maybe expand a little more yeah. on those three terms. And did you ever get thrown into the overflow room at the back of the church growing up, where they had a little rickety TV on a stand? <laughs> Anyone had that experience? <clears throat> Not very enjoyable, right? It won't be anything like that. It won't be anything like that. It'll be quality. It'll be excellent. And in fact, we're doing some things to improve the North Auditorium room. And the service will be streamed live, at least the the message will be streamed live from this room over to the North Auditorium. And then in addition to that, we'll have a live band over there and a live site pastor. 
And we're doing a number of things to help make that room feel a little bit more intimate, uh, to be able to uh, hold 300 people and to warm up the room with some, some paint and to paint the ceiling and put some wood on some of the walls. It's going to be a blessing to every different ministry that uses the North Auditorium space, but particularly for that room, it'll provide an intimate environment. You can eat in there. We'll have bagels each Sunday. Did you and, say bagels? Uh, bagels each bagels. Sunday. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. You can eat in there if you can get to the bagels before Kevin. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it'll just be a, a nice feel, particularly for those who like being a part of a little bit smaller room. We can hold 900 people in this room. That room will hold 300. And so if you feel like you want all the benefits of a larger church as we have, but you want it in a more intimate environment, that might be just what you're looking for. And then one last question. This, who are we looking for to attend that service at 9.15. Yeah, so we're looking specifically for people here at the 11 o'clock hour who would be willing to sacrifice a seat at this hour for newcomers, for guests who are looking for a place to worship and would be more likely to come into a service like this. We're also looking for those specifically that have a pioneering spirit, those who like being a part of something new and perhaps would be interested in serving to make something new really great. And um, we're excited to see it develop. Yeah. So any questions that people might have, they can contact, no, probably me. <laughs> Kevin, one at, of us. Kevin at CarneyEFree.com. You yeah. can email me, and I'd be happy to answer any questions you might have on that. I think you have one more kind of cool announcement. And then yeah, yeah. We, we had a family, I don't know who, an anonymous family that gave a very, very generous gift in order to help make this happen as we didn't anticipate this growth in our uh, 2015 budget planning for 2016 very generous gift to help make this happen over in the North Auditorium. Mm. And if you would like to also help in a small way with a one-time gift, you're certainly welcome to do that. All you need to do is write in your check venue, and that'll help us well with some of the upgrades that we're going to make to that room, which will help not only the venue service, but again, all the ministries that, that happen here at Carnegie Free. So maybe that's something though, that you can pray about as we continue to pray for the development of this new service. Sound good? Thanks, man. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Let's pray, and we'll open up the Word of God. Father in heaven, how we thank you for your generosity to us. We are grateful for um, the opportunity to grow our church this way. Thank you for the growth that you have brought to our church this spring, particularly, and for this unique problem that we have, a need for more space. And uh, we're grateful for that problem, Lord, because we know Every person really matters to you, and we want to see more and more people come to know the true message of Christ that makes a difference in life, both for time and for eternity. We pray, God, that through all of our ministries, we would see many more people come into the kingdom of God, have their lives changed, have families changed, and that you would be honored as we draw nearer and nearer to you. Thank you, God, for this upcoming venue service. We pray your blessing on it as we, uh, we plan and we do uh, a lot of detailed work. God, would you please provide that it would be a unique, exceptional, missional service that makes a great difference uh, for our community and really expands our church in the year to come. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Well, this morning we are gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter 18. You can turn there with me now in your Bible. Just by the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can always pick one up at the information table or the entrances as you come in, and that would be our gift to you if you'd like to take that home. If you don't have a Bible, by all means, please do that. If you don't know where 1 Samuel 18 is, we can give thanks to God. He gave us a table of contents, and it's good for us to use it often. 
As I start this morning, I want to just begin by telling you a story. So you can just sit back and allow yourself to be in storytelling mode for just a moment, if you will. For years now, the mighty Philistines have been in battle against the lowly Israelites. The lowly Israelite army was an underdog army by any standard. And yet they won some of those battles as they went back and forth with the mighty Philistines from the Gaza Strip. Now the great giant appears, and he's all of nine feet tall. And he is taunting the Israelites day and night, demeaning each of them and demeaning their God, seeing if anyone can rise to the challenge of a fight against him. No one is available. No one is willing to rise to this challenge. And so the taunts go on day and night, again for 40 days. Until finally a young shepherd boy by the name of David comes forward. And no one would have expected him to come forward. You know the rest of this story and how it goes down. He is the eighth born son of the man named Jesse. And as eighth-born sons go, he was oftentimes overlooked. There were no photographs of him in Jesse's living room. Uh, this is the lot of the eighth-born, apparently. So he was overlooked. He was an underdog, and he was underaged. All of Jesse's other sons were considered for the battle against Goliath, but David was not. He's perhaps a teenager at this point. Maybe he's not even yet put a razor to his face. And he comes with an impressive skill. He's a slinger. He's out tending to sheep, yes, but he's also a slinger. And the slinger isn't a little hobbyist like we might, have th like we might think of him. He didn't pick up his slingshot at the Nebraska State Fair. He has a sling, a weapon that was carefully crafted and with it a number of stones. And a great slinger in that day was a marksman. He was a sharpshooter who had an incredible capacity to wave this sling, one much like this, around his head and hurl it over 400 meters, over four football fields for a skilled slinger. Not only so, he could wave it around his head and spin it at such a, a pace that he could throw it with a velocity that was strong enough to lodge the point of that stone in between an enemy's eyes and kill him on the spot, which is exactly what he did. King Saul didn't even know about young David. He had no idea he had a marksman like this tending to sheep nearby. So after 40 days of the taunting, David heard of this and he said enough is enough and he brought his sling and those five smooth stones and he won the battle of Elah all by himself, killing David on his own. Now you'd expect that King Saul would have given him a hug, at the very least, or perhaps thrown a party for him, but it didn't go down like that. Instead, what he did is he went to David and he said, who are you, and where in the world did you come from? And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse. He so humble, he doesn't even say his name. I am the son of your servant, Jesse, from Bethlehem. 
Again, we would have expected Saul to rejoice, but that's not how the story goes down. 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, goes on to say, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry, seething. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can they have? What more can he have but the kingdom of Israel itself? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Other translations put it this way. Saul viewed David with suspicion. He kept watch over David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. While David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him not once, but twice, never picking up his own spear, never picking up his own sling. Such was David's respect for one who was previously called God's anointed, but now was going astray. As the story continues in 1 Samuel 18, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And so he concocts this plan of how he would bring David down. And he does so at the expense of his own family. He says, I'll bring my enemy closer to me by offering my own daughter Michal. I'll offer me call to David to be his wife, and therefore I will have David close to me, and as I have David close to me, I will send him out to the front lines of the battle against the Philistines, where for sure he will be struck down. That must have been beginner's luck he had against Goliath, perhaps Saul believed. But though outnumbered, David beat the Philistines. Along with his small army, he defeated the Philistines again And again, the story goes on in verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. He develops a scheme, a plot, that they should go ahead and take him down. Now, once you remember Saul's background, the story becomes all the more astounding. Saul started out quite well. If you forget the bad press about him and you put aside the flannel graph Sunday morning depictions from Sunday school of Saul with the spear in his hand. Did you ever see those? You put those aside and you just think about what made Saul unique. He was, in his own regard, before he fell, a great man. He was extraordinarily successful. He was, in many ways, a man's man. 
He developed a great army and he had great success in battle and he was the king over Israel and he was called the Lord's anointed. He had the Holy Spirit in him during a time, during a season in God's history when the Holy Spirit was not readily available to people as the Holy Spirit is available to us now. He had everything going for him. He had a great family lineage. He comes from the same family as Abraham and Jacob and Moses. Again, rewind this story for just a bit. It started off with Abraham, who was called by God to become a great nation, nation through which God would bless all the other nations of the earth, and it almost didn't come to be. He makes Abraham into a great nation, but, but then they get stuck and they get thrown into slavery at the hand of the Egyptians, and there they are in slavery for 400 years until God rises up another servant by the name of Moses, who was a descendant of Abraham, and no, Moses leads the people out of Egypt and in toward the promised land. Moses is not allowed to make it, and so his follower Joshua takes them across the Jordan River, and there they go to the land flowing with milk and honey. And then after they arrive at that beautiful land, you might remember that there's a season of time called the period of the judges. And during the period of the judges, a number of faithful men and women rose up to be great judges. A woman like Deborah and a man like Gideon. Another man named Samson. If it were not for them, Israel would have devolved into utter and complete total chaos. They just about did. And out of that period of the judges, maybe you remember that the Israelites begin begging of God that he would do for them what all the other nations have, that he would give them a king. Give us a king. It's not enough that you would be our king, God. We want to be like all the other nations of the world. We want a king too. And God said, no, 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 you, you don't want that. No, we do. We want to be just like all the other people. Give us a king. And God, ever the gentleman, said, okay, have it your way, but be careful what you ask for. And he gave him a king, and he was a man of great appearance and intellect named Saul. He became the very first king of Israel. Gene Edwards gets it right in his wonderful allegory, The Tale of Three Kings. He writes, few men have ever done what Saul did. He created an army out of thin air. He won battles in the power of God. He defeated the enemy again and again, as few men ever have. He was immersed in the Spirit of God. He was a prophet. The Spirit came upon him in power and authority. He was everything people today are seeking to be. He had it all. What ruined it for Saul? Envy. Envy melted Saul's heart. The first king of Israel, King Saul, was a man's man. He was successful by any standard. But simply put, he wasn't content not being the man. He had to be the man. It wasn't enough that he could be a great man. In the moment that he saw another man who would become the man, he lost all contentment and envy melted his heart. Now, it's really easy to, to criticize Saul when you read his story in the Scripture. And you can read through the whole book of 1 Samuel and see his story, and it's a sad tale. It's really easy to criticize him. But he is, please hear me, he's a prototype 
of our story. This isn't just King Saul's story because his blood runs through our blood and we struggle with the very same heart that he struggled with. That heart of comparison that needs to bring others down. The heart that refuses to live before an audience of God alone. And therefore, because we do not live before an audience of God alone, we need to sometimes bring others down to our size. He struggled with that awful sin called envy. You think about this, we may not struggle with that particularly, but in one way or another, we all resonate with these words that we spoke of in week one of this series from Romans chapter seven, that I do not do what I want to do, and I do the very thing that I hate. I don't think what I want to think. Instead, I think what I hate. Oh, why do I do this? What is wrong with me? I can't believe that Saul actually wanted to do the things that he did, but he didn't control his thought life. He didn't submit his thought life to God, didn't submit his heart to God, and therefore envy or jealousy or comparison, whatever you want to call it, ruined him. Now, what, what is envy and what isn't it? Let me say at the beginning here that envy is not emulation. Emulation can be a really good thing. Emulation is seeing something wonderful in someone else that you look up to, maybe a teacher or a mentor or a father or a mother, and you say, I see my father sacrificing for his wife. I see my father protecting his kids. I see my father getting down on his hands and knees to play with his kids, and I want to be like that. I want to be like that kind of man. It's that quality of... Um, Finding a role model, which we all need. Again, Paul refers to this when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a really good thing. We all need people to imitate. But isn't it easy for us to turn someone that we emulate into someone that we envy? Isn't it? I've fallen into that in the past. Like just last week, I was playing golf with a couple guys. And I started off with emulation for their beautiful golf swings. And by the end of the day, I was envying the fact that their ball was on the green while I was searching for mine through the weeds. I wanted their ball to be in the weeds and mine to be on the green. I needed to knock them down a size. This is envy. And it quickly comes out of emulation if we're not careful. Simply put, envy is sorrow at another person's good. It's feeling sorrowful that someone else is succeeding, someone else is happy, and I'm not. Someone else got something that I really wanted, and I feel sorrowful that they got it. I think the most beautiful portrait of empathy in the scripture comes from Romans 12. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And envy is the exact opposite of that. Envy rejoices when other people are mourning. And you know people who do that. And envy mourns when other people are rejoicing. And we know people who do that, tragically. This is the sin of envy. When other people have success or happiness, we feel wounded. It's commonly reckoned the second most deadly and the second most prevalent of the seven deadly sins. We might not think of it that much, but it's very, very prevalent in us in one of any number of different forms, be it comparison or jealousy or envy, this need to bring other people down by gossip. And pride and envy are just two sides of the same coin. They're really cousins of each other. 
If pride is this upward ambition that I need to look down at others because of all that I have, envy is this downward deconstruction that says, oh, because you have so much, I need to knock you down a size so that I feel a little bit better about myself. One of the unique things about envy is that uh, when we uh, sin in envy, when we sin in jealousy, we never enjoy it. It's like unforgiveness. It's one of only a couple sins that as we do it, we never enjoy it. It's a vice that we get no pleasure from whatsoever. And yet it can be habitual. It's been called the rabies of the heart and the cancer of the psyche. It's something that we do but never enjoy. An 8th century Jewish teacher referred to envy this way. The one who envy who envies, gains nothing for himself, and deprives the one he envies of nothing. He only loses thereby. You hear that? The person who is envying someone else, the person who's comparing themselves to someone else, gains nothing for themselves, and they take nothing from the person they're envying. They only lose thereby. It's like unforgiveness. It's like um, having a poison, drinking it yourself, and expecting someone else to be hurt by it. Just doesn't work. I'm not getting mine. Why is she getting that? How come she got a promotion at work and I was passed over? He has a PlayStation and all I have is an Xbox. She has four controllers, I only have two. How can I take him down or at least bring him down to my level by doing some of this? Again, clearly, this is not just Saul's problem. Envy is sorrow at another person's good. And then envy is also a root sin. It's a root sin which produces many other more destructive consequences, many other more destructive sins. I'd imagine in a room this size, there are probably some people that say, I'll hold off on this sermon. This is someone else's problem. I'll, uh, I'll listen to the deadly sin that comes next week, which is lust, by the way. Be sure to come for that one. Uh, th- this, this must be someone else's problem. This certainly isn't. But I, I tell you what, th- th- this one is so dangerous because it's a root sin which can produce others, which can be incredibly destructive. It's kind of like a gateway drug. You start off with something that, that, that people tell you isn't... Uh, too bad, that really won't hurt you, becomes a gateway drug to something much, much worse. This is exactly what happened with King Saul. He started off with this reality that he just couldn't handle someone else getting the praise. He couldn't handle losing the praise to King David, which led him to attempted murder of that man and led him to sacrificing some of his own family to uphold his own pride. And developing this scheme, this attempt, this mafia-like plot to take him down. He brings his son and his son's friends and their servants into this plot to take David down. James chapter 3 verse 16 describes envy this way. It says, where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you also have disorder and every evil practice. It's saying envy and pride lead to All these different forms of disorder and many other evil practices. So be on guard against jealousy. Be on guard against envy. Now think about it in our own lives. When we start with jealousy, we start with envy, how quickly that develops into a bitterness toward other people. 
or a little bit of anger that can simmer up toward a grudge that this person got theirs and I didn't get mine. It could even lead to a sabotaging, that if this person's going to get this, then I need to somehow chat to others about how they didn't deserve that and I did, such that I can create alliances to get people on my side. Do you see how this blossoms, how it's a root sin which can produce many others? During week one of this series on the seven deadlies, I, I encourage that we all would write down one area of temptation that tends to get the best of us and just work on that with God's help week in and week out over the course of a couple months. I'm not sure how you're doing with that. Uh, I know that I'm still working on mine. But if yours is comparison or envy or jealousy or discontentment, I'd like to suggest just a few ways here that you can fight against that temptation and begin to increasingly win the battle and live before God alone. Okay? Here's the first. Eliminate gossip. We counteract the power of envy in our lives by eliminating gossip. I love that Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And how true that is, that all of our actions begin with attitudes that are born in our heart. Starts here, and then it results in what we say and in what we do. But you know, the reverse of that is also true. That scientists have shown empirically that when we say something, it can frequently become more a part of us. That the moment you verbalize something that is negative about someone else, it becomes a bigger portion of who we are, a bigger part of us. Proverbs 26, verse 22 says this explicitly. It says, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. So what that's saying is, when we have a negative thought about someone and then we choose to verbalize it, we uh, bring it out into the open, it goes down into us, it almost becomes a part of us. It's like choice morsels of food that become part of us. That's the danger of gossip. It's not just taking someone else down, but it changes, it poisons our view toward those people. It's actualized in us as we speak it, at least to some degree. Gossip is intimately connected with envy because while envy is sorrow at another person's good, gossip says, because this person got something that I want, I need to chat about them in order to bring them down. I, I, I'm so sad to hear from so many pastors that I've known across many, many years that tell me Sunday morning is like days of our lives. Wednesday night youth group is like whatever other soap opera you can think of. It's so sad to think that students would come in here on Wednesday morning or Wednesday night and be scared to come in here because potentially they would be gossip. Now, I don't know that happens here. I haven't been told that happens at all. I, I believe it happens very, very little here, but, but I want to be a part of a church in which we all resolutely commit that we will never gossip about each other. Can I get an amen to that? that we would never gossip with each other because there is such power toward a church that is unified, that is locked arms with each other and says, I will never gossip about someone else in this room because we want to make a dent in the kingdom of God together and the way churches make a dent for the kingdom of God is by being unified. And the greatest way to create disunity in a church, almost always, you can bet on it, is gossip. 
Almost 100% of the time when you hear about a church getting divided, it started with chatty Cathy's or chatty Jimmy's. Let's do equal gender employer here. Men and women do it alike. What if we just said, oh, have you mentioned that to him? Oh, before we talk about that, can we be sure that he is in the room? What if we had that kind of backbone to say that to people? That before we talk about this person, let's be sure they are in the room with us, and then we will deal with the problem. Unified churches make a great impact for the kingdom of God, and one of the huge ways that we stay unified is by eliminating gossip. Second, we give thanks for what God has given to others. If you're struggling with envy, if you're struggling with comparison, begin to develop this practice of giving thanks for what God has given to other people. Again, Saul's basic sin was this. He couldn't give thanks for what God gave David, and so he had to tear David down. But life in Christ frees us from all upward evaluation that leads to pride, and it frees us from all downward deconstruction that leads to envy. Instead of feeling terrible because you're not the mother that Jenny is, you can just give thanks that Jenny is the mother that Jenny is. Instead of feeling terrible that you didn't get the job promotion that Dave got, you can just give thanks that God gave Dave that job promotion. Instead of feeling terrible that Rachel is so popular and you're not, you can give thanks that Rachel is popular and you can ask God to be the very best you that he has made you to be. We give thanks for what God has given to others. Remember years ago, I played basketball with a gentleman named Matt, and he became a good friend of mine at the time. He was very, very mature in Christ, and I was not. And we would play these very competitive basketball games, and I would just see that he was totally different though than others. And so I asked Matt one day, how do you stay so calm in the midst of these very competitive basketball games? And he said, Adrian, when I come to the gym, I pray for those that I'm competing against. I pray for their success. And I looked at him like he had some kind of third eye. Because when I play basketball, I try to kill people. I, I, he said, I pray for their success. I want them to succeed because I love them. I love God and I love them. And yes, I want to succeed, but I want them to succeed. And I can give thanks to God when they succeed as well. Give thanks for what God has given to others. And then give thanks for what God has given to you. Our E-Free Children's Ministry is called E-Free Kids. And E-Free Kids focuses on one life app each and every month. It's a, it's a wonderful ministry that we have downstairs. Today is a family worship Sunday. So do we have any, any kids in the audience today? Raise your hand if we have any kids that are an early part of E-Free Kids. Raise your hand. Elijah James Boykin, raise your hand. Okay, good, good. What, what, what is the life app for this month down in E-Free Kids? Can any kid shout it out to me right now? Contentment, I heard. Let's all say it together, kids. Contentment. Okay, one more time. Kids and adults all together. What is the life app? And what is contentment? You got it perfect, sweetie. That's exactly right. Thank you. Well done. Contentment is deciding to be happy with what you got. Did God give you great things? Yes. Oh, he did. God supplied all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And we choose contentment. We decide today to be content with what we have. And if you're struggling today to believe that you are enough, I can tell you I've been there as well, and it is painful. I know all about that, that struggle to wonder, 
do I have enough and am I enough? And that is very, very painful. And if you're struggling with that today, please hear the words of Scripture. Colossians 1.27, Christ is in you. He is your hope of glory. Confident assurance of glory. He is in you, and he will make it so. Or how about John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. These are the words of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his, his friends. I call you my friends if you do what I command. You're his friends. So you call Jesus master and Lord and King and Savior, but you also get to call him your friend because he calls you his friend. And we just bury these words into our souls. You think about the fact that it goes beyond that, that we are adopted into his family. We've been redeemed at the price of his blood, and nothing will ever snatch us out of the Father's hand, that he will complete the work that he's begun in us, that he's strong when we are weak, and that he's given all of us one or two or three or ten different gifts according to his sovereign love. And what we need to do is be content with the gifts and the talents that he has given and the love of God that is unchanging. You think about that beautiful passage in Matthew 25 that speaks about the various gifts and talents that God gives to different people. And you want to hold on to that because God gives little or much according to his sovereignty because he is special, not because we are special. And all he asks is that we would be faithful with the little things that he has given us. The very little gifts that he has given us, we choose to be faithful with them and he promises to multiply those for the advancement of his purposes in the world. And when we trust what God says about us, we have little need to compare to others. When we trust that we have enough, that we are enough, Comparison finds no place. Comparison is the thief of joy. It is the thief of joy. And when you know that you are enough in God, and when you know that you live before an audience of God alone, you need not compare to others. Just bury these words in your soul. Again, Colossians 1.27, John 15, Matthew 25, and I'll give you one, Galatians 2.20. Bury these words in your soul, and bit by bit they will change you such that you know you are enough because you have been crucified with Christ. And the old you no longer lives, but Christ lives in you. And the life you live by faith, you live in the Son of God who loved you and gave his life for you. He's given you more than enough. And as such, out of that, we can know we live before an audience of God, alone, of God alone. No person's judgment holds any authority over our lives. We need not compare ourselves upward or downward compared to other people. We live before Abba. We live before our daddy. He says, you are mine. You belong to me. I have summoned you and redeemed you and called you by name, and that won't ever change. You're enough. Let's pray. God in heaven, I want to believe that. I want to believe that for myself. And I want to believe that for my friends in this room. That in Christ, we are enough. That you make us enough. 
By ourselves, we may not be, but in you, we certainly are. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, for the promise that you call us your friends. The promise that you are strong for us when we are weak, and that we can find release from the thoughts and judgments and attitudes of others because we belong in you. And we need not devolve into that stuff either because it's junk. It's fit for Gehenna. Instead, we rest in your grace. We release comparison to you, God. We release envy to you, God. We release jealousy and discontent to you, O Lord. We ask that you would simply take us today where we are as imperfect mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and husbands and wives and friends and employees. And you would make us great in your time as we lean into you. I can't help but wonder if there are some here in this room who don't know Jesus as friend. Maybe you've, you've heard a Sunday school lesson a hundred times, you've heard a hundred sermons, but you just don't know Jesus as friend. You've never bowed your knee to him. You've never exalted him over your life. You've never put him on the throne of your life. And I want you to know today that he invites you to friendship with him right now. He would invite you to call him Savior. He would invite you to call him Lord. That there's nothing you can do to make him love you more and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. You merely look up at the cross of Christ and say, Jesus, would you please forgive me? And if you're in this room today and you've never done that, you got to know that this is the offer for you. And while the eyes are closed in this room, would you please hear this, that he wants to call you his friend, but he won't do so until you bend your knee to him. And if you've not bent your knee to him, this is your chance. Don't wait another day. Do it now. You don't have another day. You don't know if you have another day. Give your lives to Christ. So as our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed, if, if you want to give your life to Christ right now, no one is looking at you, would you just raise your hand? If you've never given your life to Christ, thank you, Jesus, for this man. Is there anyone else? Thank you for the man in the front here. Thank you, God, that you've captured him by your love. Thank you for this young lady. Touch her, Lord God, I ask in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord, that you love these that are coming to you. We give you praise, God, for bringing some to you even this morning. God, we, we want to call you friend. <laughs> Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you, uh, you bring people into your kingdom still today, even today. And all the saints in heaven, all the angels in heaven, and all of us in this room Rejoice over those who would bow their knee to Christ, who acknowledge you as the sovereign Lord, who would now, from this day forward, get to call you their friend. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. And God's people say, amen, amen. Would you put your hands together for those who just gave their life to the Lord? those that raise your hand, please come forward at the end of the service. We'd love to connect with you, follow up with you, see how we can help you in your ongoing spiritual growth. We'll have a couple prayer partners available up front in just a moment. But let's stand and let's sing to the God who is great.